Hello and welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. This is episode 46 of the podcast and so glad you could join me this week as we have a lot to get to. I'm back from Germany, back from the Men's World Under 18 Championship. Plenty to talk about there. We will recap that tournament. We'll talk a little bit about the things that I saw and heard there. We are going to talk a lot about the 2022 NHL Draft. The Draft Lottery is coming up on Tuesday. Um, so that is where we will go. I apologize for getting this podcast out later than normal this week. It's been kind of crazy since I got back. I'm back from Germany. Uh, I've been dealing with you know trying to get everything in order for getting kids to school and all those other things, getting back into the routine. And I had a lot of work to catch up on as well on the written side. So you will see some of that work on dailyfaceoff.com. You'll see some of that work on Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. And I also have my betting content as the playoffs are underway. Uh, you can get that at Betway. Um, so you can check that out as well. But a lot to talk about. And I also... Because I'm late, because of everything that's going on, I it's just me today. Um, we'll try to get back into the regular rotation of guests very soon. Um, this is just for the sake of ease and making sure that I got a podcast out. Got a lot of great questions, so we're going to talk about the NHL draft. We're going to talk about the world under 18s, and we're going to talk about the coaching carousel in college hockey and beyond because there's a lot of movement and that really affects things, you know, and you look at coaching is important in terms of player and prospect development. So it's important to know who's going where and all these different things. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But first, we're going to start with under 18 World Championship talk because that was the most recent thing. It's what I spent the last, uh, you know, two weeks out in Germany covering. Sweden is the World Under 18 champion. They're only the second time they've won gold at that tournament. And also a uh, huge congratulations to head coach Magnus Havelid, who has been the head coach for the two times they've won it all. And he will be the 2023 world junior coach for Sweden. So we'll see if he can continue the magic there as he did with the 2001 birth year and now the 2004 birth year. So huge congrats to him. And there's got to be a winner and a loser. And of course, USA falls just short. No gold medal for the uh, another year. 2017 was the last time USA won gold in a tournament that it used to seem like an annual or semi-annual occurrence that they would win the gold medal. But this is the longest gold medal drought. And really, you look at the last uh, two, the two best opportunities. Last year, they bowed out in the quarterfinals. This year, made it all the way to the gold medal game. Ran into an incredibly hot goaltender in Hugo Havilid. And he knocks them out um, and, and, you know, gets the gold for Sweden. And that was really the difference in the game. Team USA had a decisive shot advantage. They own the puck in that game. They just ran into a better goaltender. And it's one of those things where you sometimes you just have to tip your hat. And Hugo Havilland had one of the great goaltending performances that I've personally seen at that event. And, and you know, I've seen some real good ones. I remember, you know, years where, where John Gibson stood on his head, Jack Campbell as well. You know, guys that, that went on to, to big success. Yaroslav Askarov stole uh, stole a gold medal opportunity away from the Jack Hughes class and uh, beat them in the semifinals, and that team ended up having to settle for bronze. So it's always interesting. And, you know, the, the national team development program, they do spend two years building up to this tournament, but when you get into a one-game shot, anything can happen, and Sweden happened in this one. And the amazing thing is you consider all the how far Sweden had to come back. They lost to Latvia in the first game of the tournament. Lost to Latvia. I mean, not just lost. They lost in regulation. No points. 
They end up winning their next two games. They manage to get first place in the group. It allows them to get through uh, relatively unscathed through the quarterfinals and semifinals. They, they had a battle with Finland and ended up winning that game. Again, Havilland coming up huge in that game. Hugo Havilland. Uh, there are three Havilands involved with this team. We'll get to the other two. Uh, we already talked about two, and we'll get to the, the third in, in a little bit. But, you know, that is... Uh, the impressive goaltending of, of Hugo Havilland, who, you know, he's he's 5'10". He might not get drafted, it, you know, and it's simply because of size, because in terms of talent level, I think that he was the best goalie in the tournament, and he's probably one of the best goaltenders in the age group. But at 5'10", very difficult for an NHL team to take a chance on you. There are only so many UC Saros's out there that are able to to do that. Um, but, you know, those subs, if you're if you're below 6'2", it's hard enough to get drafted, let alone below 6'0". Um, and, and I think that that's going to be interesting to see, but Hugo Havilland certainly made a case for himself. And speaking of that, you can read about the players that I thought really impacted their draft stock at the world under 18s on dailyfaceoff.com. That, that is uh, being released on Friday, May 6th. So by the time this podcast is out, the story will already be out. You can go check that out at dailyfaceoff.com. A lot of chatter there on the the, the young players that I thought really improved their 2022 draft stock. And then uh, I will have a lot more on talking hockey or on hockey sense on Substack as well. I do plan to have a lot of player reports, specifically all USA players, but then also a lot of other players from different countries, just to give you an idea of what I saw and how I think it impacts, you know, what I've seen throughout the season, because as important as the under 18 world championship is, it's still just a small segment of the entire season. You have to take everything into account. But for me personally, this event is always hugely important because a lot of times it's the first live viewings I've had of guys I've watched on video all year. I get a chance to see how they move, how, how they look live, you know, how they progressed over the course of the season. And you also get to see them within their own age group. So it's a bit of a controlled group. Um, and, and some guys rise to the level in that and some don't. And so it's always interesting to see how that works out. But you can safely say, Sweden had a number of players that rose to the occasion and have certainly positively impacted their draft stock. We mentioned Hugo Havlid, his twin brother, Matthias, top defenseman for Sweden, had 12 points in the tournament. That's tied for second most ever in a single tournament. And you have to consider he didn't play seven games. Normally this tournament, if to win it, you got to win seven or you have to play seven games. Um, this year, only six because Russia and Belarus were out. It was an eight team tournament. So only three preliminary round games. So, you know, you would have to think that had there been another game, Matthias Havlid would be the all-time scoring leader for the single single tournament uh, for Team uh, Sweden. And, and he was on the team last year. Again, I think a lot of the things about his draft stock, it's all tied to his size. I think he's a really good skater in terms of his footwork, his ability to escape pressure, his ability to get up the ice. He doesn't have great straight line speed, but he, he, he handles himself well. He defends adequately. I wouldn't say that he's a great defender, but he defends adequately. He's very competitive, and I think he's a just a tremendous puck mover and has an offensive capability. I, you know, to the point where I'd say, hey, he's skilled enough to be considered an offensive defenseman as opposed to just you know, um, uh, just kind of this two way guy. I think he's much more offensively minded, and that's where his value lies. And I think there's still a place for that player in the NHL. In fact, I mean, there's there's many places for that player. Um, Doesn't mean he'll get into the first round. I don't know. Uh, but he certainly helped his chances with that. You know, I'd also have to say the top line of Sweden was just phenomenal over the course of the, the really the entire tournament. Liam Ogren, the team captain, Jonathan Lakiramaki, and 
uh, Noah Osland, who, you know, Osland played, was on the team last year. You know, he's, I don't think he's lived up to the expectations that so many had for him this season. Um, he's an undersized guy, but highly skilled skates fine. Not amazing. That's probably one of the things that, you know, is, is, is holding him back a little bit, but he had a great tournament. Jonathan LeCaramacki led all players in the tournament in scoring 15 points. He was phenomenal in that event. He He's more of a goal scorer as far as I'm concerned, but he was the guy setting up a lot of chances um, himself uh, and, and making a lot of skill plays and, you know, uh, talking a lot with, with people there. You know, it's you start saying, hey, does he belong in that tier with guys like Joachim Kamel and Danila Yurov in terms of that next tier of of offensive player after Shane Wright and Logan Cooley and, 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 uh, Uri Slavkovsky, you know, I mean, there, I'm sure there are people that, that would feel that Lakira Mackey could go ahead of some of those guys. So, uh, pretty impressive performance from him. And I really like Liam Ogren. Um, he's not, you know, he's, he's not an amazing skater, but he plays the game very heavy. He's got good skill. He's got a heavy shot. Um, you know, really, uh, you know, scored two huge goals in the gold medal game. I thought that was his best performance of the entire tournament. There's two-way value there. He's a winger that, that has some defensive responsibility and obviously was the captain of a, of a world champion team, which which definitely carries a lot of weight. So that's on Sweden. Um, and there were plenty of other players there that, that had great tournaments and that are certainly going to be notable going forward. But you know, those are the guys that I think are mostly responsible for what happened and, and them beating Team USA where they were so badly outshot. Um as far as the Americans go, up until that gold medal game, they absolutely steamrolled the competition. They were averaging, you know, upwards of nine and a half goals per game. They were dominant, and and you know maybe some of that not getting challenged really hurt them in the gold medal game um, when they when they really didn't have any. Uh, you know, they had the pushback, but they just couldn't find that goal. Um, and Hugo Havilad certainly has a lot to do with that, with the the number of saves that he made in that tournament and in that gold medal game. But you know, I think you look at the guys, a lot of a lot of what we expected to see from the top players, you know, Logan Cooley and, and Lane Hudson end up getting directorate awards for being the best forward and best defenseman in the tournament. Um, both make the tournament all-star team. You know, you got Rutger McGrory, who was a sensational eight goals in the, in the tournament, including two in the gold medal game and trying to will his team to victory in that final. I thought that he performed at, a, at such a high level. Isaac Howard led the team in scoring total points, you know, and, and, and had a four goal game against Canada and really set that tournament up on a great path. Um, I thought a lot, a lot of guys like Ryan Chesley, who we'll talk about, we have a question about Ryan Chesley in a little bit. I think that's a guy who's been on the fringe of the first round. I think with the way that he performed, you know, you have to at least give him an opportunity. You have to think about it for him to, to potentially be a first rounder. Does he have the offensive capability? Um, I think at times he showed that in the tournament, but what he showed to me was just a well-rounded game, Excellent skating and mobility, a physical presence, an opportunity to, you know, a, a quality defensive uh, a game overall. So those are guys that I think, you know, when you're looking in those later portions of the draft, I think Chesley would be a tough guy to pass up because you, you look at the success of some of those those national team development program defensemen that just seem to find a way. You know, they don't they have those great top tier defensemen, the guys like Seth Jones and, and Jake Sanderson and Jacob Truba. But then those next tier guys, the guys like Brock Faber, the guys like um Connor Murphy, you know, players that 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 don't have that, you know, and even even at at, at his age group, Adam Fox was kind of in that second tier at times as well. And and they've had such great success at developing top end defensemen. I think Chesley is really a guy that is going to um 
you know, continue to flourish. And I, and I like what he brought to the table, you know, and then there are other guys, Cutter Gauthier, you know, he, he didn't necessarily score at the rate that I think that we expected him to in the tournament, but he was extremely active. Um, he's really risen up the draft boards. Uh, NHL central scouting actually listed him in the top five of, of North American skaters, which is on trend with what I've been hearing from NHL teams as well. Um, there's a lot of love out there for Cutter Gauthier. He's a bigger player. He's got speed. He's got a great shot. Um, you know, I don't think that he's as as dynamic and, and creative as a guy like Logan Cooley. I don't think the hockey sense is at the level of a Logan Cooley. Um, but he certainly is, has made a case for himself. Frank Nazar, uh, you know, he, he was t- ranked 21st by NHL Central Scouting. And I sh- probably should have mentioned that at the top of the show. NHL Central Scouting's rankings came out on Thursday of this week. And, and a lot of chatter about that and and one of the the big things was that Frank Nazar was 21st on their list among North American skaters even though a lot of us believe that he could be a top 10 pick myself included um the battle level his his uh his creativity his speed you know he played through some injuries towards the end of the season and and managed to have a a real positive impact on his team i thought he was a big reason uh that that you know i i coward had the success that he had in the tournament um, but that's that's for sure a guy that that I have a lot of time for. Um, same with Rutger McGrody, who I mentioned, and Isaac Howard. I mean, I think the forward group and and Jimmy Snuggerud. You're looking at you know six guys. I think their entire top six is going to go in the first round. Um, and then you know you've got guys on the third line like McGrody, um, who would be a top line guy or a top six guy in most other situations. They just happen to have him with Charlie Stramel to to give that team a bit of a power line and. You know, Stramel very well could be a top 10 pick next season. So uh, a lot to like about what the U.S. did, a lot to, uh, you, you know, to, to to be happy about. You know, they didn't necessarily get the goaltending that they needed at the end of the at the end of the tournament. That's that's uh, certainly an issue. We do have a question about American goaltending coming up in a little bit. Um, and, and I think I'll expand on that a little bit more. But you know, it, it's it's one of those things where you just you know you 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 needed to get a couple of more saves than they got, and then you also need to make sure that you're you, you don't run into the goal kind of goaltender that you had, um, and, and Hugo Havlid was the difference. So a lot there. Um, certainly, you know, other things to mention. Finland ends up winning the bronze medal. Uh, they they outlasted a Czech team that I think really had designs on on a on a big tournament and had the big line. Yuri Kulic was the uh, MVP of the tournament scored nine goals. He was just a dominant on the power play. So many one-timer goals that he scored in that tournament and really making a case for himself to be a first round guy. Um, but Finland ends up winning it. And it was really Joachim Kamel who came through and had a big game for them. He had uh, taken a penalty late in the game against Sweden in the semifinal. Sweden scores in the subsequent power play that ends uh, Finland's golden dream. And, and, but Kamel largely played, uh, very solidly when he was healthy, he had uh, he got an illness and missed a game during the tournament, so he only ended up playing in five games. But he scored a lot of goals. He had a hat trick against Canada in the quarterfinal, uh, including the overtime game winner, which was just a probably the game of the tournament and just an, an incredibly uh, outside of the gold medal game, just an incredibly entertaining game uh, between two teams that had a lot of offensive firepower. Um, Canada, as I mentioned, gets bounced in the quarterfinal. Uh, you know, it was a turnover by by Adam Fantilli, who had had such a great tournament to that point, and was you know Canada's second best forward to Connor Bedard, um, at least in my opinion. And he ends up you know getting the uh, uh, 
turns the puck over to Kamal. Kamal gets on the breakaway and he goes, and that's the end of Canada's tournament. Connor Bedard scored a bunch of goals. As as you know, you probably saw the highlights, uh, just a, just some devastating shots from different angles, and certainly one of the best shooters and and a guy that you know tanking this year was fine. Tanking next year is the answer. <laughs> that's uh, that's all I'll say. I think if. If you want a special, if you want somebody that's a, that's a, that's a special player that could change your franchise, I do think Connor Bedard is in that realm in a way that that I'm not as convinced Shane Wright is. Uh, but that's that's where I think. I mean, Connor Bedard now, you know, two seasons of of a tr- tremendous production at the World Under 18 Championship. One as a double age, underager this year as an underager. You know, the fact that he was 15 and 16 and put up, you know dozens of points uh is is pretty incredible so um you know but that canadian team was certainly very weak they did not have enough depth to compete with the top teams that because of course the chl playoffs are ongoing they did not have their full complement of players i still don't know necessarily if canada had all the top guys that they could have had i don't necessarily know if that would have been enough for them to win a gold medal at this thing um i think that you know europe and the u.s and uh, they have they have deeper classes at this point going into this NHL draft, and that's going to be reflected. Um, you know, certainly if you have guys like Shane Wright and and others, you know, some of the defensemen. I think the defense core for Canada was was a particular weak spot. Um, then you have an opportunity. You have you have a chance to get some some real uh, you know some real traction in the tournament, but. But Canada never really got there. Um, they put a real scare into Finland, though, uh, and needed over. You know, Finland had to come back against them with a late goal, and then they score in overtime. Uh, but I don't think this will be one of those tournaments that Hockey Canada remembers all that fondly. Um, speaking of Hockey Canada, I don't mean to make this dramatic change, uh, but the 2023 World Junior site has been announced. It's going to be Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Moncton, New Brunswick. It's going to be a phenomenal uh, location for that tournament. I tried to book hotels already, and the hotels locked me out. So I was like, okay, I guess I will try another time uh, because uh, everybody's getting ready for the World Juniors. And I'm glad it's going to an area where there's not NHL buildings, but there are big junior buildings that will hold a lot of people. It will allow the – I think it will allow the World Junior Championship to reset Um you know, obviously we've had this situation where we had the cancellation last year. We're going to have a summer tournament this year, and then we go right back to Canada. I do think it's a little bit um, lazy uh, on the IIHF's part uh, to go back to Canada after um, to, to just award this. The reason that 2023 was awarded to Canada was supposed to be in Russia. Well, that got taken away, as did now the Men's World Championship in 2023. So Russia has had two major international events taken from them in response to what's going on in Ukraine as, as it should be the absolute right call from the IIHF. However, they went back to, to Canada. What's the answer for that? Well, it's of course money. Um, and, and they feel that they will make the most money in Canada. However, we've seen in the last couple of years, and I don't think this will be the case in Halifax and Moncton. I think that's one of the reasons why they're going there is that there's been a fatigue for this tournament in Canada. You know, you couldn't put it in Southern Ontario. You couldn't put it in, uh, you know, some of those areas. You know, Ottawa was an opportunity. Quebec City had an opportunity to, to get this event. Um, but they went to the smaller venues. And ultimately, you know, I think that means, well, you charge the, more for tickets and you'll still get this, you know, you'll have sold out buildings and everything else. And But but the IIHF, Hockey Canada, 
and you know the world juniors as a whole is still trying to recoup the money that was was squandered with the canceled world juniors last year and and it was a lot of money and it's you know i think double ihf is going to do whatever they can to help make hockey canada whole on that front um but i mean at the same time my concern is well we've already had one canceled tournament um we're going back who knows what the pandemic's going to look like then why not have it in a place where you know that the restrictions and the different things are probably um, not going to be, a, you know, the Maritimes had some of the strictest rules um, in the pandemic. And again, it comes back to safety. You want to make sure everybody's being safe and you want to make sure everything's done right. But that's why the U.S. I think felt, you know, I, I know that that USA Hockey put put forward some efforts to say, hey, why not have the World Juniors, 2023 World Juniors in the U.S.? Um, but I think the, the whole goal of the, at this point is to help hockey Canada and the double IHF recoup the money that was, um, you know, lost by basically having to have the same world juniors twice. And I don't know exactly how the summer world juniors is going to go, how it's going to be received, how it's going to do on television. Um, I already know from talking to, you know, people involved, not just with USA hockey, but with, you know, other hockey federations, I've got a lot of contacts in international hockey, Nobody's real excited about the Summer World Juniors, um, and, and you know it, it's it's uh, the it, it's a it's a lot. You know they want the players to have the experience. Everybody agrees with that, but it's not it's not the best. It's 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 bad timing on so many fronts. It's anti development. It's not really great for the players, um, and that's one of the things that I heard not just from national team officials, but from scouts nhl scouts nhl teams that don't want their players in that position where they you know they already have had completely wacky years development wise this would be their first opportunity to have a full summer to just you know with with limited restrictions and being able to go full into training and and having every opportunity to get better and for a large segment of high-end prospects they're gonna have to get ready for the summer world juniors and then you know, obviously, for many of those players, they'll play in one World Juniors in August and another in December. So, who knows what any of this is going to look like? But yeah, it's it's a lot, and and I'm you know I've made my thoughts about it known. I'm glad that it'll be it'll happen for the players that missed out on the opportunity. I'm also not a huge fan of the timing, the process, and everything else. There's no good way to do it. But at the same time, you know, if I if I were, you know, an NHL team, and and I know that NHL teams are already telling, you know, some of their guys that are under contract, you're gonna sit that one out, or we'd like you to sit that one out. And some teams will leave it up to the players, and some will make the decision for them. So we will see where that goes. All right, before I get to your questions, I did want to talk a little bit about the NHL coaching carousel. Um, because, or the NCAA coaching carousel, because that has an impact throughout hockey, especially when it's big programs. So as of right now, um, there have been some jobs filled, Michigan State and Boston University, two high-profile positions that were um, open. Uh, Adam Nightingale, who was with the National Team Development Program and was with Team USA in Germany at the World Under-18 Championship, has been named the head coach at Michigan State. He played there for two years. He was a director of hockey ops there. He's coached with the, the Detroit Red Wings. Um, he's been involved with a number of other teams and programs, including Shattuck St. Mary's, and obviously the last two years, the NTDP. He will be the head coach at Michigan State. 
a lot of praise there. A lot of people excited about that. Michigan State has a long way to go. They got a long way back from from the you know that 2007 national championship. It it was a long time ago. It was 15 years ago, which is insane to say, um, but it feels even longer uh, just because of kind of where things have have gone. And um, I think that they made a made a made a tough decision. Oh, about 10 years ago that that really set them back. You know when when they replaced Rick Comley. And they brought in Tom Anastas, and and that you know I think that that certainly um, at the it was an outside the box move that had unfortunate results because for years it was getting harder for Michigan State to acquire the the elite prospects there, and it's been a long time since they've had them and and have developed consistently NHL players. So um, so that is that is interesting to think about, um, in terms of, of, of all that. So, um, but anyway, moving on as I, as I just completely lose my train of thought and just trail off and just have no sense of, of, uh, of transition, um, moving into, uh, the Michigan state from Michigan state to Boston university, Jay Pandolfo will be the head coach at Boston university. He's been the favorite, both Nightingale and Pandolfo were the guys that at the very beginning everybody just figured would get the jobs. Um, they were the they were the favorites to get it, and they will get that. Pandolfo was the associate head coach last year under Albie O'Connell, who was uh, let go after four years um, as the head coach. Then uh, Pandolfo, uh, formerly coach with the Boston Bruins, he won two Stanley Cups as a player. He went to Boston University, you know, and as an alum. Um, so interesting. A lot of people figure that that was just, you know, BU was going to go right there, but they didn't, they actually did do their due diligence. They went out, they looked around, they tried to, you know, make sure that they made, they were making the correct decision. Um, it's my understanding that one of the people that they reached out to was Minnesota state head coach, Mike Hastings. I think there was very significant interest from Boston university to bring in a program builder, especially since Hastings has a, has a close personal relationship with David Quinn, um, Quinn, uh, by all accounts, wants to remain in the pro side of things. He wants to get back into the NHL. It'll probably have to be as an assistant coach, but I think that's something that he's he's comfortable with. Maybe as an AHL coach as well. We'll have to wait and see um, where that goes. But David Quinn, uh, you know, didn't want to go back to his alma mater. Didn't want to go back to the college route. So we'll see where he ends up. But you know, very interesting enough that that BU went outside the box and you know outside of the alumni base and and went for at least had the conversation with Hastings. But in the end, it'll be Jay Pandolfo's team. Um, you know, a guy that cares deeply about the program, a guy that has great success as a player and has had some success as a coach. Um, and and now he'll have a chance to, you know, put the put the program back on the rails. Um, and that's going to be difficult to do, but it's, it's interesting enough. Now I move over to Boston College, still open. Um, and it it's, you know, they've had two potential head coaches that they could have poached from other programs, Mike Cavanaugh, who was a longtime assistant at Boston College, and Nate Lehman um, from Providence. Both of them have opted to you have pulled themselves out of consideration. They both got um, raises and extensions from their schools. I don't think that this was simply a, I'm just trying to get a raise because everybody had kind of figured that Cavanaugh was going to go to Boston College at some point. Um, and, and when he left UConn, it almost was like a wink, wink, kind of you coming back. However, Greg Brown, who coached at Dubuque this year and coached with David Quinn at the New York Rangers the years before that, has a lot of uh, time with USA Hockey, very well respected in the program, was there for, for many of the, the, the high points of Jerry York's tenure as head coach. It looks like he's going to get the job. Um, 
but at least BC has continued to explore all options. Um, and it's not a foregone conclusion, but I think most people expect as it was at the beginning that between Greg Brown and Mike Cavanaugh, one of those two guys would be the head coach. And with Cavanaugh out, it would stand to reason that Brown will be the head coach at BC. Lastly, the situation at the University of Minnesota is interesting. Head coach Mel Pearson, his contract is up. Uh, he has not been renewed, but he is still the head coach of the Michigan hockey team. Um, and so there's been an investigation ongoing. It is my understanding based on sources and and, and, and people that I've talked to, I think that the tea leaves are, are suggesting that Mel Pearson will remain at the University of Michigan despite the... Uh, everything that's kind of swirled around the program and the rumors and everything else, but it is still very much up in the air. There is still a lot that we do not know yet uh, that we are not certain about, but um, as of this point, still the head coach there, if that job were to come open um, and now it doesn't seem like it will, you know, there are a lot of names that you could throw into the hat for that position. Um, but at this point, and this can change, but at this point, it looks like Mel Pearson uh, will remain head coach at the University of Michigan. We are still waiting on official word from that. So we will see uh, what happens and uh, everything else will will go from there. So that is uh, kind of the coaching things. Other things that have kind of been happening around, you know, the National Team Development Program, they had the opening with Adam Nightingale moving on. Um, and so he moves on. USA Hockey has promoted Nick Four to the head coach position. Now, Nick Four has been there for 11 years as an assistant and associate head coach, uh, assistant coach, associate head coach. He has done a ton of work with some of the, some great players. You think, you know, he's worked a lot with defensemen. Um, he's he's had the you know the chance to work with guys like like Hannafin, Morensky, um, and then more recently Sanderson. He was on the bench for this last Under 18 World Championship with Chesley and Lane Hudson. Um, you know, he's worked with Quinn Hughes, you know, all these different, he, he's worked with a lot of different players, um, and has had a hand in their development. And so, so that's a guy being rewarded for paying his dues, sticking around and now getting the opportunity to be the head coach at the national team development program. Very fascinating, um, you know, uh, opportunity for, for a guy that's been there for a long time and, and now gets his chance to run it. So, uh, that'll be, uh, that'll certainly uh, be uh, be a different uh, different kind of situation there. Um, we'll see where that goes. A lot of assistant coach hiring still have to be made, and those are obviously important as well. But just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, there's a lot of other rumors swirling. I think there's going to be quite a few coaching changes, and there already has been in the USHL. Um, and there's going to be people moving on into different positions throughout hockey. So uh, just keep an eye on that. We'll have much more of that for you on Talking Hockey Sense. Um, as well, or on Hockey Sense on Substack, uh, as I get more in that. So, we've been rambling on for about a half hour. I've been trying to get all those things in there, and now I turn the podcast over to you. I want to hear your questions. You have asked them. I will answer them. I really appreciate that. Um, and we'll start with some questions tied to the U18 Men's World Championship, and then we'll go straight into specific 2022 NHL draft stuff. And then lastly, um, some general prospect and college hockey questions that I got as well. Um, so this first one comes from Linus. 
I'm just really happy that Sweden is starting to have real success on the international U18 level. Is Sweden's final win against the U.S. the biggest robbery of a game win you've ever seen on the junior international stage? It's up there because I would say that that was one of the, you know, where USA got fully goalied, you know, like where you just get a guy that absolutely stands on his head and doesn't allow your opportunities. Now, on top of that, I will say in addition to the getting goalied, USA missed the net more than I think they did all tournament long. Um, they have so many snipers, the guys that can just pick corners, and there were so many missed nets and hit posts and everything like that that it was crazy to see. Um, but you, you know, I mean, you also have to you have to look at the shot counter. You have to look at the different things that 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 really stood out in that game, and. You know, I'll tell you, it was it was something else to uh, to watch that that under eighteen World Championship game unfold because at the beginning it looked like the U.S. was just going to kind of roll, and and then they started getting into penalty trouble, and then that could make all the difference in the world. So they start getting into penalty trouble. Sweden starts capitalizing on those opportunities, but I mean, let's take a look at the shot totals here: fifty-one to fifteen. If you take fifty-one shots. You expect, and the other team has 15, you would expect to win that hockey game. I think in most cases, you would not expect to give up six goals, one of which was an empty netter, but you would not expect to give up six goals on 15 shots. Um, you know, and that was certainly a, a big contribution to it. But then 47 saves from Hugo Havilid, that makes all the difference in the world. Um, you know, you look at this also, I mentioned the penalty trouble, you know, USA gave up two power play goals against, they scored one of their own. Um, you know, they just kind of ran out of real estate and the game got away from them a little bit more in that second period when they got into penalty trouble, gave up back-to-back -back power play goals. And then, you know, they, they had a nice response at the end of the period, but by then, you know, you're already on your heels and then you've got you're trying to play catch up a little bit because Sweden was able in that second period to take a two a two goal lead um, temporarily. They ended up going into the third period with a one goal lead, and then they were able to extend it very early in that period. So, uh, you know, it's it's not the biggest robbery though. The biggest robbery that I ever witnessed was at the Ivan Holinka the Holinka Gretzky Cup. The first year it was in Edmonton. Um, USA had definitely won that game against Canada. It would have been a huge upset for the U.S. to beat Canada's, you know, very best team with Alexi Lafreniere, Kirby Doc, Dylan Cousins, Bowen Byram. Um, uh, that team was just absolutely loaded. Um, and this U.S. team, which was the 2001 birth year, so also very talented, but they didn't have Jack Hughes and 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 Cole Caulfield and Matt Boldy. They had Nick Robertson. They had Arthur Kaliev. Um, they had uh, Dustin Wolf in net. You know, so it was a great game. Uh, Canada ended up scoring the game tying goal after the after the buzzer because they they opted not to use video review in the tournament because they felt like it wasn't fair because they had a secondary venue, which was no longer in use by the time we were in the medal round, um, that didn't have video review capability. So the referees had to basically guess. And the reason that we know that the goal shouldn't have counted was because the green light was on, um, time had run out, the TV broadcast showed clearly that time had run out, but they didn't use video review. And so as a result, that U.S. team loses that game to Canada 
They're a basket case the next day against Russia and do not medal in that event. And it was one of the greatest performances by an American team at that particular tournament uh, that I had ever seen. And they lost that game, though they should have won. So that was the biggest robbery that I've seen on the international stage. And apparently both were perpetrated against the United States. But either way, you the robbery in the World Under-18 Championship this year was because of a player performance. And that's why you have to tip your hat to Hugo Havilid and just say, wow, unbelievable job by him. All right, next question comes from Kyle. Hi, Chris. Noah Oslin opened a lot of eyes during the U18s, but he's still not considered a first-rounder by a lot of draft experts. Just curious to have your thoughts on him, and what do you think? And do you think a team could pick him higher than we expect? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Kyle. I appreciate the question. And he Oslin is a really interesting player um, because I think he is partially victim of expectations because I don't think he lived up to the expectations that so many had for him this year. Now he was dominant at the U20 level, but you know, he's still light. He's not very strong. You have a little bit inconsistency in his compete. Um, you know, but he had 42 points in 32 games at the U20 level, no points in 11 games at the SHL level. Now, when he was at the SHL level, he didn't exactly play a whole lot, you know, times he dressed where he didn't even really take a shift um, or would play single digit minutes. Um, you know, so those were, those were kind of things and, you know, didn't register any points, but he was obviously dominant at the U20. So he's one of those tweener prospects um, where you're like, Hey, you know, what, what can you do? Well, I think that the, the question for about him was, you know, at his size, is he dynamic enough? Is he, is he creative enough? Is he quick enough? Um, I think the skating is probably the biggest hangup on Oslin because he is, you know, he's a five foot eleven forward, about 170 pounds, maybe, um, you know, if he's lucky, uh, and you know, so he can get pushed off pucks. He can, you know, he, he's he's got to be a bit more on the perimeter at times. I thought his performance at the under 18s really was eye opening. You know, he had 10 points in six games. He was really good. Um, at, at creating, you know, he, he, he made things happen. He made plays. He has really good hand skills, but I think, you know, there's, there's enough questions there about, you know, can he do it at the next level? Um, I think there's almost no chance he could be a center. I don't think the defensive capabilities are at a, at a, at a level where he would be able to be a center. Um, and that injures his value. You know, if, if, if he could be his size and be a dynamic center, then you know he would be a guy that I think would go in the first round. Um, he's a very good U18 center. He's a good U20 center. I don't think he can be a center at the professional level. Um, you know, just due to a lack of strength and 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 kind of you know a lack of, of of defensive capabilities. But I thought he really competed. Thought he found a way to to be a little bit more of a two way presence. Um, turn pucks over, you know, like in, you know, in the good way where he was getting it from the other team, you know, he was forcing uh, giveaways and, um, you know, getting takeaways and all those different things. And, um, you know, but until that world championship too, I should also say, you know, in other events didn't really pop, you know, he didn't really, you look at the U18s last year, he was kind of a bit player on a, on a, you know, a team that ended up taking the bronze medal. And this year he was an alternate captain and a, and a, and a highly utilized forward. So um, I still think that it's more likely he goes into the second round, but it, it would not surprise me if there was a team there late in the first, especially in a year like this where there is not a lot of consensus and there's not a lot of 
great feelings about the depth of this class. You take a chance on a guy that shows that he has skill, playmaking ability, vision, um, you know, good enough offensive hockey sense to make an impact. And that's why I think that he at least has a chance. So we'll see where that goes. Tristan A asks, how does Ryan Chesley compare to Brock Faber? And you know what, Tristan, that's a pretty good, um, you know, kind of comparison in terms of style of play. You know, I think I was mostly underwhelmed by Brock Faber in his draft year. Um, And I, looking back on it, I think it was just because I was so overwhelmed by the way Jake Sanderson played in his draft season and seeing those two guys in the same blue line, it looked like there was such a gap, but I think the gap has narrowed a bit in, in recent years and Faber is certainly up there. I think the things that are very similar, Chesley is not a dynamic offensive player. That's Brock Faber, not a dynamic offensive player, but can move pucks extremely well. Uh, Both of them can get pucks up the ice. They can get out of their zone. They can jump into plays, great gap control, really good footwork, good skating. I would say that Faber has more straight ahead speed and is a a better overall skater, but they're similar in size. They're both right shot. They both have good strength. They play a physical enough game. Um, I think Chesley's a little bit meaner. Uh, I think that he, 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 he uses the body a little bit more effectively. Um, you know, he had a very good under 18 worlds. I think that he put himself into the first round mix. And I think a guy like Brock Faber, the success that he's had post-draft gives a guy like Ryan Chesley a chance to, to jump a little bit higher into the draft. And I think the Chesley, um, you know, relative to the draft class is in a position where he could sneak into that first round. I think he's going to be a great collegiate defenseman. I think it's going to be great to have both of those guys on the same blue line at Minnesota next year. It's going to be great for Chesley to continue to learn from Faber um, and, and kind of figure out how he can be a dominant collegiate uh, uh, defenseman. So I, I think, you know, if I'm looking, I, I don't know that, that uh, you know, if Chesley can take the, the Faber-like jump that we saw in the last two years uh, out of Brock, but if he does, you know, he certainly has many similar attributes. So I would say that that, you know, if I'm looking at those two guys, I feel very similarly about both of them in terms of their long-term projection. I think that each could be a potential, you know, top four guy that doesn't have the the offensive um, dynamic element, but moves pucks well enough and is such a good skater that they can kind of overcome some of those issues and they both defend extremely well. Andreas says, Chris, we had a quick chat and land shoot on Sunday. I remember that. Thanks, Andreas. Great. It was great to see you. I really appreciate you stopping by. Uh, where would you see the tiers and or significant drop-offs for the upcoming draft? Thanks. Well, you know, it's it's tough to say because, I, you know, I think that there is a, a top tier. I think, you know, Shane Wright, um, Logan Cooley, Uri Slavkovsky. Um, you know, you can make a case for guys like David Juracek, Simon Nemitz, uh, Frank Nazar. Um, you know, those those types of guys. I think that there's a – there's. I don't call these this year's tiers as much as they're just blobs of <laughs> of guys. And, you know, I think that I, to me, there is a separation between Cooley and Wright and the rest. Um, I think those are the top two guys. They're very decisively there for me personally. That is not the case across the board. There are people that certainly have Slavkovsky at two. There are people that have Nemitz as two. There are teams that have... Um, Nazar ahead of Cooley. There are teams that have Cutter Gauthier ahead of Cooley, and we'll have a Cutter Gauthier question here in a second. Um, and that's, you know, that 
it really gets murky after that. You know, I, I, I feel pretty strongly that, you know, if you have a top 10, top 13, 14 pick, you're going to get a player that's going to make a significant impact in your prospect pool. After that, you're getting a lot of, I don't know. You're getting a lot of maybes. You're getting a lot of, this could happen. You know, I think you look at guys like, you know, so in that top 15 or so guys that we will say, um, you know, there's a good mix of defensemen and forwards. There's not a ton of great centers. Um, you know, there are some guys that, that could kind of sneak in there, but you think, you know, in that, that upper tier, we're talking about guys like, as I mentioned, Wright, Cooley, Nemitz, uh, Slavkovsky, Juracek. Um, I think Pavel Mintukov, Saginaw Spirit defenseman, could potentially be in that mix as well. Um, you've got Nazar, you've got Goche, you've got, um, uh, uh, trying to think, uh, <laughs> You know, the uh, Danila Yurov is in that mix. Joachim Kamel, um, Jonathan Lakiramaki also I feel is pretty pretty strongly is in that that group of 15. And then we're still working on some of the other guys that could kind of go uh, after that. Then you look at that next tier and there are guys like Brad Lambert. There are guys like Noah Osland. Um, you know, the, the guys that I think are have have flaws but have something to offer. Like in Lambert is is probably the best skater in this draft. Um, it's between him and Cooley for me and, um, and Nazar and is very good as well. But, you know, those guys are, are, are exceptional in that thing. But, you know, I, I have no idea what to make of the year that Lambert has had the last two years he's had the fact that he's gone backwards, the fact that, um, you know, I'm not necessarily as high on his hockey sense at this point. Um, you know, what are the different things that I need to address with him? So there are a lot of guys like that. And I think the same as like, you know, Owen Pickering, defenseman for Canada at the World in her 18s. I like him a lot. He's in that kind of similar chair. Denton Matechuk, uh, you know, really good offensive defenseman. He's a guy that I think could sneak into that 15 range for me. Um, you know, but that's that's where we're at. So I can't give you a great definitive answer, Andreas. I, pro- I apologize for that because I'm still working through it. And, and now that I've got the under-18s fresh in my mind, it's a bunch of new data that I have to fully digest. But there are a lot of still, even you know, as I think about it just off the top of my head, and as you look at different things like NHL Central Scouting and, and other rankings and things like that, there's a whole lot of I don't know. Um, you know, A lot of guys that I'm not super confident in, a lot of guys where I can see arguments for and against being first rounders. Um, and there, that, that group is bigger than I think it's ever been, um, for me. Uh, and so we'll see where it goes, but I, I mean, there are a lot of different things that we need to continue to work through as we get through this draft, but I appreciate the question. And thanks again for stopping by. It meant a ton to, to find, you know, listeners from around the world, um, those of you that are not in North America that listen to this podcast, thanks so much. I'm glad you enjoy it. Um, and uh, please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review if you love the podcast and, and subscribe to it and make sure that we continue to move up the charts. And, and I really appreciate it. Gotten a lot of good uh, good feedback and a lot of five-star reviews. So I'm, I'm giving double thumbs up to the air, and this is not a visual medium. So uh, I'm just telling you now that I'm, I'm thumbs up. It's just a thumbs up to all y'all. So, uh, thanks for that. All right, <laughs> moving on. We're going to talk more about the, the 2022 NHL draft. And, and I got this question just before, um, I, I started recording. So I'm going to answer it real quick. Um, uh, Fox Duke asks, where is Cutter Gauthier expected to be drafted now? Is this top 10 status? He has really come on. I can tell you that going into the world under 18 championship, the buzz around 
Cutter Goche was deafening. Um, I think he has progressed in such a way that everybody knew he was a good player, that he could score goals, that he could make plays. But when you're six foot three, almost 200 pounds, you can move well and you can shoot like he can. And he had nine total points at the world under 18s. You've got a chance to, to really make it, make it. Um, there are definitely teams right now, right now that I would suggest have Cutter Goche in their top five. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, they'll, they'll have more meetings and, and things like that, but I would expect Cutter Goche to be a top 10 pick at worst. Well, I'd say top 15 at worst, but I would say it is very reasonable to expect him to be a top 10 pick. Now that is aided publicly by NHL central scouting. They ranked him third among North American skaters. And I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility. Now, just so you know, I said six foot three. That's what he's listed as. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Central scouting lists him at six, two point two five. So you can't round up to six, three from 6.2, uh, 2.5. Uh, but you know, and he's close to 190 pounds. Uh, this is their weights and measurements by central scouting, which if you are going to look at a player's height and weight, don't go off of their elite prospects or hockey DB or what their team gives you go off of central scouting's rankings. They, verify that info it'll be verified again at the combine and weigh-ins and measurements are still important i know you say well size doesn't matter it does unfortunately it does and it will continue to matter um i I shouldn't say unfortunately it's just a fact of the game and you watch the nhl playoffs and you say that's a guy we need because he can play heavy he can play physical he can handle the physicality he can bounce off the physicality you know, he can, he, he's, he's, you know, he's not that big, but he's super fast or he's super skilled. You know, those are the types of things. A lot of conversations are going to revolve around height, weight, competitiveness, you know, like hockey sense is the most important thing, but that height and weight thing is still very important in the process of player evaluation. You try not to let it impact you too much and you don't want it to allow you to make mistakes and become biased against certain players or for certain players. Um, but it is, it is, it remains an important thing for NHL teams and something that you have to consider. And I think that that is a big reason that Cutter Goche has moved up is he is not just big. He's big with goal scoring talent. He's big with ability to put up points and, um, that matters. So I would say that, that he's certainly trending in, in the right direction. Frank asks Danila Yurov's player style and ceiling. Uh, so Danilo Yurov, of course, is is one of the top European players in this draft. He has been dropped a little bit. He's he's ranked seventh on NHL Central Scouting's final rankings. Um, he comes in at six foot one, 178 pounds. Um, his height and weight are not verified by NHL Central Scouting, just so you know. Um, but that's what they have it listed as there. And he is. I think, you know, at 6'1", 178, you say, oh, he's not that big. You know, he's not a big guy. I think he plays with power, though. I think that he plays with, um, you know, strength and that he has really, uh, he's got a powerful stride and he's got creativity and he's got patience and good hands and a really good shot. Very quick, um, you know, 
this year did not help him developmentally, I don't think. You know, he played in the U20 league and he was dominant. He played for Metallurg in the KHL throughout the regular season and playoffs, and he, he, he had zero points. And you say, oh, man, zero points. Well, let's take a look at his ice time through the playoffs. How many times do you think he played more than a minute in a game? Because you can count it on one hand. Um, so, you know, I mean, his team made it all the way to the final. Um, he, he plays for, you know, for, for Magnitogorsk. And uh, he played 57 seconds in the last game. Eight seconds in the game before that. None in the previous two games. Under two minutes in the in game three. Two, two minutes and 10 seconds in game four. I mean, so how do you evaluate that? That's the real question. And the the answer is, is that, you know, you have to go off of his U20 stuff. And, and just to give you, you know, to give you a comparison, it's it's tough to do because we just haven't seen him that much. You know, haven't seen him in a meaningful kind of like, you know, the 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 Canadian or the Russian U20 league is 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 a good enough league. But it's if that's all you have to go off of, it is very difficult um to use things like production and different things like that to, to suggest, oh, well, he's going to be this or that. Um, you know, so I think he's going to be a really good player. Um, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, the guy that, that he just kind of reminded me of, um, you know, he's not, doesn't have the same physical build. He's not, you know, like Brandon Saad was a man child, but he kind of has, he has similar capabilities. The, the way he drives the net, the way that he gets through, you know, I, I like those capabilities of him. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, when I see the physical build, I see young Brandon Saad a little bit, um, even though Saad was a bit bigger. Um, so that's kind of a guy that I could see. I think his ceiling is top six. You know, I think if he, if everything goes right for him, if he can start playing some games, if he can develop, um, you know, continue to build strength, I think that's a very good thing. Um, he is under contract for one more season. That's the other thing to kind of keep in mind right now is, you know, he's he's got a contract with um, with Magnitogorsk through the 2022-23 season. After that, he would be eligible to come out over, assuming that his contract info is all correct and everything else. So um, a lot to do there, but I like the player quite a bit. Uh, Los Coyotes Steve asks, please make the case for Juracek as the top D-man available and the potential he could go in the top four or five. All right, so David Juracek is one of the top two defensemen available. It's between him and Simon Nemitz for most people. Um, certainly there are others that might say, well, Kevin Korczynski is in that mix or Pavel Mentukov is in that mix. Um, I think it's pretty decisively between Juracek and Nemitz. Um, I think there is a an outside chance that, that either one of them could go in the top five. I, I think that the the forward crop is you know at the, at the at that stage of the draft may be very difficult to to pass on, but um, the thing that complicates Juracek's overall projection is that he missed a good chunk of the season after the World Juniors, gets a knee injury, has to have surgery, he's out for a long term long time, um, and that provides or that presents a ton of risk, um, and uh, and that is what you have to weigh when you're talking about top five. Um, we are now seeing him. He's playing with the men's national team uh, with, with um, the check with Czechia. Um, and so that is a good thing. If he makes the world championship, it'll give him another opportunity to, to showcase himself for the draft. 
I think the things that people love about him and the things that I certainly love about him as a player is, you know, he's a big, big right shot defenseman. He has some physicality to him. He's defensively adequate. He's very good offensively, has a bomb of a shot. Absolutely uh, tremendous there. He's a very good skater. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's mobile, he's fluid. He's got, you know, some real good, uh, offensive instincts as well. He's, you know, he, he does a lot of things well. Um, and this year he played, you know, a top four role in checks, the top pro league in Czechia with, uh, the, for, with HC Pilsen had 11 points, five goals, um, you know, with the U20 team internationally this year, five assists in, in various events, he did have one assist, um, in the U20s before he got injured. Um, so, you know, and, and he has scored two goals with the senior team in their pre-world championship preparation. So, you know, it's just a matter of, if you look at the entire body of work that he's had, um, you know, I think that it's very impressive. He played pro hockey last season as well as a young, you know, he, he made his debut at 16. Um, you know, so that's pretty impressive. He's, he's done a lot over the last couple of years to really build that up. Um, so we'll see, but I, you know, I think could, could he go in the top five? It's certainly possible. It's a big projection. Um, but you know, I, I do think that he is, you know, it, I, I'll have, I'm still working through video and I want to see a little bit more from both him and Nemitz and, and allow them to complete their seasons before I make a final decision on which, uh, which I feel is is best in terms of you know the best long term pro, but at the midterm it was your check for me. So um, take that for what it's worth. Bill Armstrong's burner, and I'm not sure if it's really Bill Armstrong's burner, but he does ask it in the first person. How good is my prospect pool going to be? Hashtag Yodies. Uh, so Bill Armstrong, of course, the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes. Don't think that's really his burner, but either way. Um, the Coyotes are in, an, in a unique position in this draft in that they have multiple draft picks. They obviously have their own, have the opportunity to potentially win the lottery. Um, I would say that there are basically two guys, two to three players in this in this draft that you could say, okay, well, that's going to make our franchise, that's going to really set our franchise up nicely for the future. Shane Wright, Logan Cooley, possibly uh, Uri Slavkovsky, uh, possibly. Um, you know, I don't I don't feel as strongly about, about him, but it's an opportunity for the coyotes to really boost a, a system that, that needs it. You know, they, they got a huge boost last year in getting Dylan Gunther. That was a hugely important thing for that franchise to do because they didn't have that cornerstone prospect. You know, um, Barrett Hayton is kind of in, been in limbo developmentally. He had a nice year this year. I think he's going to continue to progress. I, I'm certainly not giving up on him, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, you still hope that you could get something out of, you know, uh, Victor Soderstrom, um, you know, I think there's still a lot there, but huge year for Dylan Gunther. He's the crown jewel prospect right now. He's the guy that you you really hope for the best for. Uh, really, they have to be excited about Nathan Smith and Jack McBain, two guys that will probably play a little bit further down their lineup, but weren't in their system until late this year. Um, you know, and then good AHL seasons from Matias Michelli and, and Jan Yannick, uh, you know, so that's good. But really this, this draft, the way you know the way that the draft is setting up right now for the Coyotes is they're going to have multiple first round picks, which allows them to you know it's it's a lot of lottery balls. Um, so they've got three first rounders, they've got four second round picks at the present, and their own third rounder. So you're looking at a ton of draft picks at the top range. So the the inevitably 
the prospects pool is going to get better. The question is, do you land one of those guys that can change your franchise? Do you land one of those guys that you could, you know, be a cornerstone piece that you build around? And if you end up, you know, depending on how the lottery balls bounce for them, you know, I think Shane Wright could be a centerpiece player in their in their system. Is he going to change your franchise in the way Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews or even let's say Jack Hughes did for, for, for New Jersey. Um, and that's still projecting out long-term. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not as excited as I was before. I, I think he's a great player. Um, I think that he is going to be a fantastic NHL player. Will he be a franchise changing player? Um, I'm just less convinced. And that's a huge threshold. That's a huge jump from is he going to be, you know, a good player to franchise changing. You know, like that's that's a huge leap for anybody to make. So we'll have to wait and see there. But because of the sheer number of draft picks, the Coyotes prospect pool is going to get better this year. Um, really, though, the question is how bad are they going to be next year? And how many first round picks are they going to have next year after the after the season? Because the rebuild is far from over. There has to be more pain. And if you can make that pain turn into Connor Bedard or Adam Fantilli or Matt Mitchkov or someone of the like, you're feeling a little bit less pain after that happens. So we'll have to wait and see. But I do think the Coyotes prospect pool will get better as we move on from this draft. Uh, Nam Danan asks Cooley versus Wright, Nemich versus Juracek. We kind of covered that a little bit already. Um, still waiting on the Nemich versus Juracek debate. It had been Juracek, then he got injured. Then, it, you know, Nemich has had such a great end of the season, has progressed in such a way that I think you can't ignore that. Um, so we'll wait and see. I got to do some more video work on those two guys. As far as Cooley versus Wright, as of right now, Shane Wright is ahead of Logan Cooley on my board. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've started putting together that list and, and I had Logan Cooley at number one at the midterm. I only have dropped him to number two. I think there's a little bit, he needs a little bit more maturity in his game. And that's what I think Shane Wright has. There's maturity. There is, uh, there is precision in this game. There is, um, high end hockey sense and there is uh, good enough hand skills. Um, I want to see both of those guys, you know, become guys that can take over games on a more consistent basis. Um, in order to say, hey, one of them is is absolutely the best of, of the best. And um, who knows, there might be people out there that, that want to get Uri Slavkovsky into that debate or Frank Nazar or or anybody, really. Um, so a lot, lot left to, to be figured out there. All right, next question comes from Jake. Is there something to fewer American goalies being picked or regarded highly in 2020 and 2021? Will that change this time around? Well, it's not going to change uh, for a little bit. Um, you know, we don't have that Spencer Knight, uh, caliber prospect. And the good news is, is that the guys that have made it to the NHL, the guys like Knight, and then you're looking at Dustin Wolf and he was the goalie of the year in the AHL. You know, there are Americans that are starting to make an impact at, at the position. Um, but clearly the goaltending depth is something that has waned a little bit in these last couple of years. Um, it's something that USA Hockey has been focusing on and getting more players uh, to play the position. So that's going to be something to, to kind of be aware of and keep an eye on. Um, but, you know, I, I think that I don't think there's really anything to it. I think it comes in cycles. And as of right now, if, you know, Russian goalies are 
are, are the are the thing. There have been Finnish goalies. There have been French Canadian goalies. I mean, there, there's the, it goes in cycles, and you just wonder where those guys are going to come from, and sometimes you don't know. Um, but I will say that there is certainly efforts underway um, in all countries to try and shore up the most important position on the ice. All right. Now we move into some more general prospect and college hockey questions. And the first one comes from Cameron, who actually emailed our, sorry, Cameron's uh, is, is more about process than it is about prospects. Um, and I like this question because I think it'll you know give you a little insight. And it's also something that has evolved over time for me. Cameron asks, something I always wonder with evaluators, what's your note-taking process like during a live event or live game? With hockey being such a quick game, if you write too much, you obviously miss action. Do you feel it's easier to go off of memory whenever you're at your laptop after the game? Really good question, Cameron, and it certainly varies person to person. When you're at a rink, you'll see some scouts with no notes out, no notebook, or no, you know, most of them do have their notebooks. They'll fill it out. They put their lines in before the notebook, uh, in each notebook, and it, it's able, they're able to get to it in order. Um, I have a slightly different um, process. So, um, I usually write, you know, we get line charts for every game typically. Um, and I will use those as my note, uh, my notepad essentially. So they made the lines out, you know, and then I've got that. Um, and I do take notes over the course of the game, but it has gotten significantly less specific and significantly less, um, onerous to, to me so that I can continue to watch the game. So, um, some of the things that I'll always take notes on, I'm always looking who's on the power play, who's on the penalty kill, which unit are they? I've also started writing down a, like a diagram of how the power play is set up so that I can see which, where the players are, um, you know, I'll put their numbers in, in the order, you know, if it's like an umbrella or if it's, you know, whatever it is, you know, and they'll have like the bumper and the, you know, the half wall and the top of the point and all that stuff and the net front guy. So I try to make sure that the, that's on there. Cause that's, that's relevant information for the reader um, when I, you know, cause I'm obviously my audience is not the general manager who's going to make a draft pick. It's you, the reader who wants to know about the player. So, um, and then uh, in the process of that, so like, those are the, like just the, the key things. And then in order to take notes, I, I take small notes just to, just to imprint things in my memory. I find that if I do write something down, it'll stick in my memory better. And then I'm able to go off of the top of my head, even if I don't have to refer back to the notes. If I wrote it down, it's, it tends to stick with me. Um, so I'll write things like high skill play. Um, and sometimes I'll write it multiple times over the course of a game. Then I'll count them up and I'll say how many, you know, how many high skill plays this player make. Um, and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I will write things like, you know, skating question mark where it's like, I want to know more, you know, I need to do more work, um, on the, on the player's skating. It's something that, that I've flagged as something that needs to be watched closer. Um, hockey sense question mark, or, you know, like, uh, things like that. If a player makes a, a significant play in a game, I'll tend to write that down. Um, you know, I, I, I always mark whether the player scored a goal or has an assist or, you know, whatever, um, and, and try to, you know, dictate, you know, did this player maybe didn't get an assist, but he, he he's the reason the goal was scored. Um, you know, so those are things because when you're doing draft rankings and things like that, you need to get all of that information scrunched into a very small amount of space. Um, and so obviously it doesn't really make much sense for me to write down everything that I see and 
things. But the things that I want to remember are things like, does the player make smart plays? I'll write, you know, like mature or poised or things, just little words that allow me to remember that. And then it, and then I'll, I'll know why I wrote that. Um, and so that's one of the things that I do there, but, um, you know, it's always like a lot of scouts, they have very similar formatted notebooks. They'll have the, the pages are laid out in, you know, three across and you write down the lines and the corresponding numbers and all that stuff. And and the defensemen and the goaltenders and all that. And, and it really does allow you, um, to get a visual for, you know, that game. Um, and I just, Basically, I used to do notebooks and legal pads and all sorts of different things. And I just started doing the line charts because I would, you know, eventually file them in the order of the games that I went to also by league because I cover so many different leagues. And I found that that is a little bit better of a system for me to be able to go back and look at my previous notes than flipping through a notebook. Um, And so, you know, I basically, the other thing too, is there's a lot of information on that line chart, including like things like what the player stats were going into that game. Um, And then my notes will will be on top of that. So I find that really, really, really interesting um, to me. So I'm excited about that, Uh, you know, taking notes and, and having those line charts. And then when I go back to do my draft rankings and I have all those, you know, I, I, a lot of what I've seen, I remember, um, you know, so I don't have to go back and refer to them as much. The nice thing for an NHL team, most teams will have setups where, you know, they have, they have written reports and they'll file it through a program called RinkNet. That's almost all the teams use that program to, for their report filing. And so each game will come with player reports and teams do different do things differently. There are teams that want every single guy written up. There are teams that, that played in that game, no matter what. Um, and then there are also other teams that will just have very specific players that scout is supposed to be watching and he'll file those reports. Often there are deadlines on those reports and different things similar to, to, to how writer is. So um, that allows them to convey that message to the, you know, the general manager, the assistant general manager, whoever's running scouting um, and teams do things differently with those reports, but it allows, you know, it allows the, the executives to keep things going and, and, and to read things. And, um, but you know, so that was a long winded answer of that. You asked about, you know, you know, my, my note taking process and it's really simple. Um, and in the end, I find that it works very well for me and, and I'm able to do it. And then if I need to refresh my memory, the great thing is, is that I have things, you know, video to go back to and, and watch and, um, you know, if there's something that I missed over the course of a game, um, I will go back and watch it later. So thanks for the question. Uh, Beehawks0035 asks, any word on whether Seattle and Ottawa will allow Maddie Beneers and Jake Sanderson to play in the U20s? What roster changes can we expect from Team USA in August? Thanks for all your hard work. Well, thank you for the great question. Um, as of right now, I would say I would put the chances of either of them playing in the tournament at zero. Um, they have not, as far as I know, that has not been specifically intimated to USA hockey, but I think they are preparing as if they will not have either player on the roster. And that is a significant blow to the roster. Um, those are two players that would have been, um, absolutely essential, uh, and two guys that played in the Olympics and two guys that have won a gold medal at the world junior level um, to lose those two is, is, is big. There will be changes to the roster. Um, you know, certainly I think there are going to be players that are going to be available and those that won't be. 
I'll be interested to find out, you know, so you've got Luke Hughes is going to the world championship. I should have mentioned that the U S world championship roster is out. So Luke Hughes is going to that. Does that mean he'll also go to world juniors? I think it would, if they don't have Luke Hughes for the world juniors, that could be really bad um, for that decor to have already lost uh, Sanderson. Uh, but we do expect, you know, Brock Faber to be on that team. Um, so they'll have players. But yeah, I would say that the likelihood of Beneers and Sanderson being available is slim to none. Uh, I'm, I'm putting those chances at zero, and I'll stick with that until I hear otherwise. Uh, but we will find out exactly um, where things go from there. All right, our next question comes from AJ, and he asked this question for last week's podcast, and I missed it, and I felt really bad, so I'm answering it now. AJ, thanks for your patience. Hey, Chris, I have a couple of New Jersey Devils Providence College questions for the next podcast. How did you view Tice Thompson while he was a college player at Providence in terms of projecting him to the next level? Has that projection changed at all since his transition to pro hockey or more of the same? Also curious what your thoughts on Patrick Moynihan are. What could hold him back from reaching the NHL and do you see his strengths or, attri- do you see any strengths or attributes that could propel him forward? All right, good questions there from AJ and a couple of uh, players that I like quite a bit um, and still like quite a bit. Tice Thompson, um, of course, the younger brother of Tage Thompson, uh, was went undrafted in his first year of eligibility, goes to Providence, um, and then has a really strong freshman season. He wasn't it wasn't a, a earth shattering freshman season, but it was very strong. Then he has a great sophomore season, continues building up, and uh, you know played another year at Providence. Obviously, we had the COVID uh, uh, you know shortened seasons for everybody, and he he had had a point per game, um, and then made the Devils and played in Binghamton and this year he had to deal with, you know, shortened schedules and injuries and other things. And he only ended up playing in 16 AHL games, but had 15 points. And you know, the things that you like about Tice Thompson, um, what I liked when I saw him in his draft year, I did list him in the draft for his second draft eligible season. I didn't have him listed the year before, even though I did see him at Dubuque. I thought he was a good player. I didn't think he was a draftable player. I thought the skating needed a lot, had a long way to go. Um, and at Providence, what I saw was a highly intelligent two-way forward that could make plays, that could, you know, saw, spotted plays really well, thought the game at a high level, had good offensive instincts, still didn't have the foot speed, but, you know, there was enough there. And as he got bigger and stronger, you know, he was going to be able to have more success. So, you know, I think this past season with the limited games, I think it does, you know, it impacts his trajectory a little bit, but it's just going to be on him. And you have to also keep in mind Tage Thompson, his older brother, was a bit of a late bloomer himself. Um, he had the goal scoring tools, but there were a lot of other things that he didn't have. And this year he had a career year with Buffalo and will continue, I think, to get better. Um, you can't compare straight, you know, straight one to one, but I do think that Tice Thompson has been a traditionally late developing player. Um, and that he will continue to progress. Um, I liked him a lot. I think the hockey sense is high end. I think that there's a lot there that he can do well. Um, now it's just a matter of getting healthy, be, staying healthy, and making sure that he's on the track towards um, you know, getting back to the NHL. I think that the, he still needs to work on his pace. That's going to be the biggest hurdle. I think he'll probably play you know, long-term. He projects as like a third-line, fourth-line guy who gives you some scoring depth as, as you know, the NHL game evolves. So he's going to have to have that defensive capabilities as well. Uh, but, you know, average almost a point per game when he was healthy this year, and that was uh, excellent for him. So I have a lot of faith in his ability, um, you know, to – to, to make uh, make some progress. And, uh, you know, he did play in two NHL games this year as well. So we like to see that from him. And, 
and hope that uh, he stays on uh, on the right path here in terms of his development. And uh, I think he's a good player. So as, as far as Patrick Moynihan goes, I mean, I think the only thing that really holds him back in terms of, you know, his overall NHL projection is probably, you know, the size. You know, he's average size, 5'11", 190. That, that gets you into the NHL. It's not a, not a huge problem. Um, there, but I would say that that is is really good, um, and you know that he's he's average size, you know. So last year didn't necessarily have the production that I think I personally expected from him as a third year college player. Um, you know, I, I I don't think that you know Providence produced well as a team. You know, I, they they struggled a little bit more than I expected them to, um, but I still have really high hopes for for Moynihan. I think that he is has a high work ethic. He has an underrated skill set. Um, that allows him to contribute offensively. I would expect a big season from him at Providence next year. That's what I would want to see if I'm a Devils fan. Uh, I think that he's going to be the kind of guy, you know, obviously because of the fact that he's going into his senior season, he will have the eligibility um, to uh, to go to free agency after next season, should he choose to do that. Um, I think it helps that, you know, he's close with, with Jack Hughes and, um, you know, Jack obviously was a big fan of the pick when they made it, uh, back then there was a video about that talking about, uh, how much he liked Moynihan. And, um, you know, I think that for, for Patrick, it's, uh, just going to be an opportunity for him to this season, to take that next step, to be the offensive driver, um, to still play quality defensive hockey, to, to continue to show great work ethic and to continue to get stronger. Um, and then he'll have a chance. So I, you know, I think the work ethic is a big thing. Uh, the next question comes from Mike Craddy, and he asks, if you had to pick one person, who who do you think ends up taking the reins from Jerry York at BC? Well, we now know. Uh, as I've been recording this podcast, um, it's been reported by both my colleague Frank Saravalli and, and Pete Tamil of ESPN that Greg Brown will be the head coach at Boston College um, after one year as the head coach of the Dubuque Fighting Saints, and before that was with um, was with the New York Rangers and then spent 14 years as an assistant coach under Jerry York at BC, had full support from the alumni that played for him. He's been a head coach uh, or he's been a coach at the U- at, with USA Hockey at the national team level, um, has gold medals at the World Juniors. And, um, you know, I think that he's he's been the guy so many have felt. Uh, and that is actually now that I say that even now, it's officially official. He has been announced as the head coach for uh, Boston College, and um, he is uh, all smiles. Very nice man, a very good coach, uh, a guy that that had Dubuque going in the right direction. They got bounced in the playoffs. Is a bit of an upset there, uh, losing to Muskegon in the playoffs. But um, unfortunate for that. But aside from that, you get a guy who went to Boston College, who loves Boston College, who you know, learned under the the legend that is Jerry York and a guy that probably will be there for a very, very long time. If all goes well, he's going to have a really good team coming in next year. Cutter Gauthier is one of the big recruits coming to Boston college next season. That's big time. Um, so that's going to be huge for them. And, and it's going to take a little bit of time to, to get things headed in the right direction. They, they, they gotta, you know, they gotta get the goaltending short up. They gotta make a couple of moves here and there um, just to, to, to tighten up that team. But Boston College, I mean, Greg Brown just seems like a fit. Seemed like he was always going to be there. So uh, that's uh, that's who's got the Boston College job. And that's how we're going to end today's podcast. Congratulations to Greg Brown. And congratulations to all of you for lasting to the end of the podcast if you did. I appreciate it. Um, we will have much, much more over the course of the coming weeks. I will have a post 
draft lottery reaction next week, potentially with a guest, possibly only with me. We'll see what happens. We'll see how I'm feeling. I'm not a very good producer. I'm I'm a better host than I am a producer. Let's just put it that way. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But draft lottery is on Tuesday. And then we will have a reaction on Wednesday. So do not miss that. We are excited to bring it to you. Also, don't forget, like, rate, review, uh, subscribe to the podcast, do whatever you have to do to help get the word out, share it with your friends, send it along to people. Uh, Also, if you want to support this podcast even further, subscribe to Hockey Sets with Chris Peters on Substack. It will mean a great deal to me if you can do that because it helps financially support what we're doing here. And uh, you'll also get a ton of content, including coming very, very soon, my post-Under-18 World Championship Player Reports, which is exclusive to Hockey Sense subscribers. So sign up today so that you make sure that you get that directly to your inbox so that you can learn all about all these players that I spent the last couple of weeks watching. That's going to do it for this week's episode. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense, and we will catch you next time.